Do you see me? I'm on the jogging path every day as you run by. Do you see me? I have your tall, skinny vanilla latte ready for you every morning when you come in. Do you see me? I'm rich, sad, lonely, depressed, poor, suffering, sick, worried, scared, hopeless. Do you see me? I'm small and insignificant. I'm big and loud and covering up. I'm insecure. I'm abandoned. Do you see me? I'm a student, a doctor, a homemaker, a salesman, an orphan, a business owner, an acquaintance, your friend on Facebook. Do you see me? I'm a member of your club, your team, your committee, your homeowners association, your school, your staff, your church. Do you see me? I'm successful. I'm a failure. I'm white. I'm black. I'm gay. I'm homeless. I'm middle class, urban, rural, educated, a dropout. Do you see me? I see you dropping your kids off at school, sitting on the train, walking through the building, coaching your soccer team, picking up your pizza. But do you see me? I'm your neighbor, your dentist, your old mailman, your boss, the bank teller, your coworker, your employee, the cashier at the convenience store. I'm your mother. Do you see me? I need your understanding, sympathy, help, care, compassion, attention, your friendship your savior. Do you see me? I am all around you every day in every place. Do you see me? I'm a child of God, created in his image. Do you see me like he sees me? Do you see me at all? Amen. Again, welcome. Welcome to church. Welcome to Maple Grove. Welcome to week four of Pray for One. I am so glad that you're here this morning as we continue in this conversation about praying for one. But before we go there, I want to remind you guys of a, a challenge that I put out last week. A challenge to catch people doing something good. You know, I declared the, the rest of the month of May, you know, uh, catch me doing something good. Catch someone doing something good. You know, I don't know about you, but I really believe that our world is full of too much negativity, too much criticism, too many judgments, and too many put-downs. I, I mean, people just love to point out the ways that, that other people mess up, that other people fail. And so my challenge was for us to actually catch somebody doing something good, and then to tell them, tweet them, text them, post it on their Facebook, call them up on the phone, and let them know. You know, I, I, my challenge is for us as a church to start a, a, a revolution of encouragement, 
right? You know, uh, let's think of ways that we can encourage one another and spur one another on to love and the good deeds. And, and, and I've been doing that a lot this week. You know, uh, one morning I sat down and, and, and sent out five texts real quick. And when I got done encouraging these people, you know, hashtag catch me doing something good. You know, when I did that, uh, when I was done, you know what I felt? I felt good. I felt good. It actually feels good to encourage other people. And so uh, the question is, you know, uh, will you take that challenge? I, I hope you do. I hope you do. And we start spreading around encouragement. Um, it's a good thing. Now, the purpose of this Pray for One series, as we said many times before, is to, is to align our heart with the heartbeat of God. The heartbeat of God, which is to bring his lost, his tired, his weary, his broken kids back home. It's to be on mission. Pray for one. It's about doing our one job. We have one job, and yet it's time for a few more of those, uh, my favorite, uh, you had one job pictures, all right? Here we go. All right, you had one job. Install the railing and the stairs. Okay, I don't think that railing's going to help you very much, right? You had one job, all right? Here's another one. You had one job. I'm sorry. You may like Chipotle, but it's not a country, right? You maybe wish it was a country, but it's not a country. Okay, yeah, you had one job. All right, okay, uh, put her eye where it belongs. I'm sorry, that's not where Barbie's eye goes, right? You had one job, right? Okay, and that's not going to help you on that road. And this cheerleader had one job, right? She had one job. Hold up the sign that says go, right? This just didn't work out. You had one job. I, I love these pictures. And, you know, if you find some good ones, just email them to me because every week we're going to share these things. And at steve at the groveseville.org. But, but I have a question. As, as Jesus followers, as a church, what's our one job? Brothers and sisters, we're in the witness business. That's what we're supposed to do. Jesus said that, that he called us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the earth. And, and that's why we're here, right? That's why we're still here after he saved us, so that, that we can do this. And listen, if we fail to do this, if we fail to seek and save the lost, then nothing else we do really matters. Get it? Good. Bottom line, we have one job. And what we've been talking about the last several weeks in Pray for One is some, some action steps that we can take that will help us be on mission. And the first action step, you know, is to pray. It's to pray for one, you know. It's to pray that simple prayer. Lord, please give me one person to share your love with today. And that today is really important, right? Because uh, sometimes we can put it off, well, next month when I have time, right? No, today. Please show me one person that I can share your love with today. I hope you're doing that. Um, you, you can take your connection card on the program. On, on the back page on the connection card, you, you'll see where you can put uh, your phone number and you'll get a reminder text, you know, to say, remember to pray for one. And I got to tell you, they, they hit me all at the right time. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I can get pretty good at throwing pity parties for myself. I'm the only one that shows up, you know, and I can, some, I've been in the middle of some pity parties and next thing you know, I get a text. Remember to pray for one. I go, oh, you bonehead, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, it's not about you. It's about the one that God can share his love with through me. The second action step is to connect, is to make real tangible connections with people who do not know Jesus. Sure, we need to have our Christian friends, but if we're not connected to lost people, 
we'll never be able to reach them. I mean, salt does no good if it's not applied, right? Uh, light, light, light does no good unless that light shines into the darkness. We pray, we connect, and this week we're going to talk about the third action step, serve. But before we go there, I, I want to share two quotes uh, from the book, uh, one from the book rather, and one from the Pray for One devotional. Um, if you haven't picked up a book yet, I would encourage you to do that. This book by Bo Chancy is one of the best books I've ever read. This devotional is the most challenging, convicting, inspiring, Holy Spirit, sauce-flowing devotional that I've ever read in my entire life. I'm so serious. You know, I encourage you to do that. The questions, the think about it questions are incredible. And, and uh, we took a pause on the devotional uh, last week because we stepped out of the series for Mother's Day. Um, time to catch up. You know, wherever you're at is where you're at. You don't have to do a bunch in one day. Pray for one's not going to ever end until Jesus comes back to take us home. And, and, uh, but this week, if you're on, on level, you know, on task or whether, you know, on chart, on the right page, it would be day 22, all right? But here, here's the first quote, and this one's from the devotional. It's good stuff. Life with Jesus cannot make sense when his mission is not our primary objective. This is the grand frustration that, that plagues everyone who accepts salvation but rejects the new identity and purpose that comes from being united with Christ. The joy of salvation fades as the process of stumbling after Jesus proves to be more arduous than we ever anticipated. We begin to question the commands of Christ. We begin to wonder if the sacrifices required to follow him are worth it. And we start to think that we could be happier if we did things our own way. In some regards, we're correct. If we're not consumed with seeking and saving the lost, then actually, following Jesus will produce little to no satisfaction. Without a dramatic shift in missional philosophy, we are left to assume that being a Christian will make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. It is impossible to follow, it is impossible to deal with frustration and difficulties. Anybody have any frustration in your life? Any difficulties? It's impossible to deal with frustration and difficulties when the primary motivation is wrong. And this will pop up in your notes, this part here. Me-centered Christianity cannot work. It is a lie that deludes the mind and dilutes the power and purpose of the church. Me-centered Christianity cannot work. It is a lie that deludes the mind and dilutes the power and purpose of the church. Following hard after Jesus is never primarily about me becoming a better me. It's about being used by him to do what he came to do. And then from the book, uh, chapter 5, One Prayer Does It All. How do we know if we're successful in life? Good question, right? We're only successful if the creator's purpose is fulfilled in us. His purpose is for us to partner with him in his work. Are more people in the kingdom of heaven because of how God uses you? Are more people in the kingdom of heaven because of how God uses you? This really is the only question that matters. Pray for one and your aim will be right. You can't hit what you don't aim for. People do not just accidentally fall into discipleship. Discipleship occurs uh, through concerted effort and prayerful devotion. Disciples do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He made disciples. Disciple make disciples, period. If you are not reproducing spiritually, then you are not a disciple of Jesus. If you're not re reproducing spiritually, 
then you are not a disciple of Jesus. Can you say, ouch? Turn to the person to your right and left and say, ouch. Ouch. My toes. Ouch. Uh, There's no way around this simple logic. The plain truth is before us. How will we respond? And then Bo, um, here's how he responds. My response is to pray for one. Because when I pray for one, people are saved. I love God more. I love people more. I love Christ's mission more. One prayer does it all. Awesome stuff. Life-changing stuff. Church-changing stuff. I mean, you cannot read this book and you cannot, you cannot read this devotional without being changed and convicted and inspired and challenged. And I'll tell you, I'm loving it. Our life group on Thursday night, I mean, we, we, were, we were just talking about it, what we're learning, what we're challenging, and, and then saying, hey, here, here's the names of the ones that God has brought into my life. Uh, would, you, would you join me in prayer? Uh, Father God, we love you so much. And, and God, we just humbly come into your presence. God, there, there's no one like you. And God, there's no one who compares to you. And God, we thank, we're so grateful that you see us and you see what we're going through and that you care about us and, and that you sent your son into this world to pull us out of the, the muck and the mire, the, uh, the tears and the pain, the discouragement and the frustration, and to give us a, a home with you, to adopt us into your family. And, and God, I, I pray as we continue in our conversation this morning, God, that, that we would choose to open up our hearts, to open up those ancient gates open up our minds and allow your truth to penetrate, God, so that we can be on mission for you. And I, God, I know that when we do this, we will find the life that we're looking for. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one day, a, a religious guy asked Jesus two questions. One was a really good question, and one was a really dumb question. We'll read about this in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Uh, One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And by the way, that's the good question. Now, we don't really know what this guy's motives were. I I mean, was he sincere and he he really wanted to know? Or or, or was he he trying to to make Jesus, this young upstart rabbi, look foolish? Uh, Again, we're not sure, but, but the Greek word here used for test implies that it's much more than a pop quiz, that it is a potential trap. In fact, it's the same word that, that Jesus used in, in Luke chapter 4 when he's talking to Satan in the desert, when Jesus said this in Luke 4 verse 12. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And, and I love how Jesus responds to this guy's question. I, I mean, he really understands people and, and he knows that this religious expert would much rather talk than listen. And so Jesus invites the guy to give his own professional interpretation of the law. After all, this was his area of expertise. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a great answer, right? I mean, it's the exact same answer that Jesus gave in Matthew 22 during the final week of his life when another religious expert came up and asked him, hey, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, love God, you know, love your neighbor. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus told the guy in Luke 10, you've answered correctly. And to be honest, I I think Jesus is a little excited here. I I mean, this guy got it. He got it. 
He knew that being right with God, despite the popular mindset of the day, was not about following a bunch of rules and relationships, but it was about love. It was about loving the Father and loving the Father's kids. Loving the Father and loving the Father's kids. Something so simple that a two-year-old could actually understand it. When we lived in um, north of Atlanta, Georgia, um, Kevin, and Becky, Kevin and Becky Flannery had a two-year-old girl, and she was, her name was Kirsten. And I, I can't tell you how many times I messed up that name. I, I think, okay, it sounds like ear. Kirsten. I record all kinds of different things. But anyhow, you could go up to this two-year-old little girl. And I, I did it like every Sunday like five or six times because she was so cute. And, and I would say, uh, Kirsten, what does God want us to do? She would say, love God and love people. And I go, you're so right. You're so right, sweetheart. And then Jesus says in Luke 10, 28 to this guy, do this, love the father and love his kids, and you will live. Turn to the person to your right and left and tell them, love the father and love his kids. And, and like, like, like Bo said in the video we watched a few weeks back, it doesn't get any deeper than that, Right? It doesn't get any deeper than that. Love the father and love his kids. Do this and you will live. And uh, that word live there is the Greek word zoe, right? It's not, where, it's not bios where we get biology from, physical life. It's spiritual life. So he, he's talking about it's so much more than just physical life. He's, he's saying you do this and you'll live. You'll come to life. You'll have the life that you always wanted to live. And understand, knowing the right thing to do is great, but it's not enough. We need to actually do it. Do you remember when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples? And he washed the stinky, smelly, nasty feet of, of uh, uh, 12 guys? And I got, I got to say, I got a life group member. A few weeks, if you were here, I did a message called Beautiful Feet. And how we all have beautiful feet because we share the gospel. And I put a picture of my feet on the screen, you know. And, and, and some of my life group actually thought I Googled ugly feet on Google Images to come up with that. I said, you know what? If I want to see some ugly feet, I just got to pull off my socks and put my feet on my desk. And that's what I did, right? And I don't think they're that ugly, by the way. And I, I'm not going to show them to you today. Some people um, had to leave um, and got ill after seeing those things, all right? Okay. Um, but, but after Jesus did that and he demonstrated his love, um, John 13 says he, he met them in that room to show them the full extent of his love. And, and then he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you what? If you, if you do them. Again, if we love God with everything we have, if we love our neighbors, we'll live. We'll be blessed. And Maple Grove, this is what Pray for One is all about. It's about loving God. It's about having God love us and having God's love flow into us and flow out from us into this lost and broken world like streams of living water. Do this and you will live. In other words, your answer is correct, but your behavior needs a little improvement. Sure, you've been a member of your synagogue for the last 60 years, and you've never missed a Bible study, but there needs to be some more doing in your life, some more loving in your life. And yet Jesus' response kind of stung the guy a little bit, which leads to him asking a very dumb question. Luke 10, 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I understand, instead of repenting, this guy does what any card-carrying religious hypocrite would do. 
He tries to justify himself, to justify his actions and his inactions. Okay, super rabbi dude, riddle me this. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a story. It's a very famous and well-known story. A story that goes to the heart of, of what it means to love like God loves, to see like God sees, to serve like God serves. It's a story about three men traveling on a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It, it was a notorious road. It was 20 miles long. It, it, it dropped an elevation 300 feet. It's full of all kinds of rocks and caves, plenty of places for bad guys to hide out in. In other words, it was not a good road. There's no lights. There's no highway patrol. There's no 911. There's no emergency call boxes. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Okay, what we have here is a crime scene, right? Okay, try to picture it. This guy has been beaten. He's left for dead. He's bloody. He's bruised. He's in bad, bad shape. And he'll probably never make it back home to Jericho. Jesus continues. By chance, a priest came along. And, and I kind of picture this half-dead guy squinting through his bruised eyes, and he sees a priest coming. He's thinking, awesome, what luck. Here comes a priest. You know, I saw the guy coming out of the temple a little while ago. Everything's going to be great. I mean, he's probably feeling like the farmer I heard about the other day. Uh, this farmer was coming out of his fields uh, along some back roads in the hills, and just as he pulled onto the main road, a car came over the hill at a high rate of speed, hit him, the farmer was thrown over, he's pinned under his rig, his donkey's thrown into another ditch, and his dog is barely injured near him. And the driver already had one DUI, he wasn't hanging around, and a good thing because a sheriff was the first car to come by. And the farmer's thinking, what luck to have the first car be a sheriff. But he began to worry a little bit when he saw how the sheriff was dealing with the situation. The sheriff walked over and looked at the donkey, and he, all four legs were broken, it was an obvious pain, and so he took out his gun, shot the donkey in the head, and killed it. Walked over and saw the dog. The dog was in bad shape, pulled out his gun, shot the dog in the head, and killed it. And then he goes over to the farmer, says, hey, buddy, are you doing okay? And he says, I've never felt better a day in my life, right? So I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, my leg is cut off, but I'm good. Just get out of here. The unfortunate, when people are hurting Sometimes the last person they actually trust to help them is someone that they should be able to trust. Amen? Amen? Amen. If you're visiting, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a preacher who needs participation, and it gets you out quicker, right? You know, I mean, I say amen, you say amen, right? Amen? amen. All right. Oh, oh, come on, you don't want to go that bad, do you? Now you, now you don't hurt my feelings. All right. Hey, have you ever seen this bumper sticker right here? God, please protect me from your followers. I mean, shouldn't it be the opposite? I mean, shouldn't it be, dear God, I am laying in a ditch. I'm in a really, really bad place. Could you please send me one of your followers? Because I know how your followers will treat me. And I think we know that that's not how the world feels about us as Christians or as a church, does it? Now, the last person they want to see is one of us, right? Here comes a Bible thumper. They're going to smack him in the head rather than reaching out and lending me a hand. When he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. By the way, that's not the church we want to be. 
And that's not the church we are. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. I mean, this guy actually went out of his way to avoid doing the right thing. And understand, this is God's way of saying to the dumb question guy, hey, this is you. This is you. Hey, anybody that has to ask the question, who is my neighbor, has already demonstrated that they are a bad neighbor. It's like Jesus saying, let me describe a bad neighbor to you, Mr. Dumb Question Guy. It's a person who passes by on the other side of the road to avoid helping someone out. You know, apparently on this religious guy's list of things to do, this one just didn't rank up there very high. I, I don't know, maybe he was heading to a church business meeting. Uh, maybe his heart had become so callous. They thought, you know what, this guy deserves it. Whatever the case, his attitude was, I'll just keep my distance, I'll, I'll keep people and their needs um, at arm's length because if I get close, I might get involved. And if I get involved, I I might have to do something that will cost me something that I'm not willing to pay. Maple Grove, a bad neighbor is the one who has to go out of his way to avoid doing the right thing. This is the point. I I understand. God, God, God put you in a neighbor. God, God put a neighbor. He put you. He put neighbors around you, so, so that, so that you, so that we could be a witness to them, and not so that we would walk by on the other side of the road. Now they may be in your family, a person in the ditch. They may be in your neighborhood. They may be at work. They may be at school. I don't know where they are, but God's going to put them in your way. You don't have to worry about trying to find them because they're going to be there. Maybe they're going to be in trouble. And maybe they're in trouble because they did something stupid. But that doesn't matter. Jesus continues. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And here we have another religious person. God, please protect me from your followers. And he just avoids the guy. Now maybe the Levite is thinking, okay, I don't know, maybe this guy is dead. If I roll him over and I find out he's dead, the law says I can't touch a dead body because if I touch a dead body, I'll be unclean. I won't be able to serve at the temple for a while. Yeah, buddy, I really like to help, but at the bottom line, this, this Levite missed the point and felt that following the rules, most of which they made up themselves, were more important than helping people, which Jesus did all the time. And, and you know what? I, I, I'm pretty confident that if we were to call these two guys on this, you know what they would say? I don't know what you're talking about. I never saw that guy. I didn't see anybody in the ditch. I understand one of the most important things in the story, and it's in the text twice, is that both of these religious guys saw him, and they went by on the other side of the road. You know what the problem is? They didn't really see him. You know what I'm saying? How you can see and not see, or, or like in the, the monologue uh, that Andrea crushed, by the way, you know, uh, do you see me? I, I understand the only way we're going to complete our mission is if we see people, is if we, we see them through the, the lens of, of compassion. And no one saw through a thicker lens of compassion than Jesus did. Check out Matthew 9, verse 36. Jesus is going from town to town, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing diseases. 
When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See the difference? How Jesus saw the person in the ditch? When you see people for who they really are, I mean, sometimes I see the crowds and I see people sometimes, and you know what? Sometimes I think they're idiots. Like, like why are you doing this? Why are you living this way? Why have you done this to yourselves? But brothers and sisters, that's not how Jesus saw people. He saw them through the lens of compassion. He he saw them as helpless, harassed sheep without a shepherd. And then he said in the very next verse, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. You know, I, I I think the workers are plenty. I just don't think the workers are seeing. They're not seeing people. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, the triumphal entry. Luke 19. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he saw the city ahead and began to weep. And that word weep is a very strong word in the Greek. I don't know if you've ever wept so hard that your body is shaking. You can't talk. You can't stop yourself. And the tears, I mean, there's times I wept where I thought, you know, I had to lose at least 20 pounds in snot, right? You know, because it's just like, where is that all coming from? It kind of amazes me, right? It's like, I have it, I'm producing all that. But Jesus is weeping. He's sobbing uncontrollably. And he says, how I wish today that you of all people, Jerusalem, would understand the way to peace. The way to peace is me. It's not rules. It's not religion. The way to peace is Jesus. The way to inner peace, sustaining peace, is Jesus. It's not things out there. It's not getting a better job. It's not improving that relationship. The way to sustaining peace is always Jesus. He says, but now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Jesus had eyes of compassion, which should not surprise us because Jesus was God in the flesh and God was full of compassion, which does not always sit so well with God's people. It did not sit well with a prophet by the name of Jonah, right? You know the story of Jonah? Remember how Jonah got very angry at God? You know, because like, like when he finally got spit out of the whale and, and he preached and they repented, Jonah was not very happy about it. Jonah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to die than to see your compassion for people that I hate. You see, Jonah didn't want to have compassion. Jonah didn't want God to have compassion because Jonah could not see the Ninevites, through the lens of compassion. He wanted, he wanted God to destroy the Ninevites, to wipe them out, to kill them. He didn't see them through the lens of compassion, but God did, and that was the problem from Jonah. I, I understand, unless our, compassion, unless our compassion is greater than our comfort level, especially with certain people, we're never going to do any good. You know, our compassion level has got to be greater. The priest and the Levite did not have it. But never fear, the hero of the story shows up. The protagonist arrives. 
And guess what? He has it. He has compassion in spades. And it's a very huge plot twist. If you remember, up, up to this point, Jesus' audience, you know, it, it's, it's, it's the Jewish religious leaders, and so far they have been cast as the bad guys in this drama. Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And, and as soon as they heard that word Samaritan, let me tell you, the death glare started coming Jesus' way. It's just bad enough for Jesus to make them the bad guys, but to make the hero a Samaritan? was even a bigger slap in the face. I mean, is this, is this, it was it, it how did she do that? Had, good. <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched her doing that. That is like some crazy stuff over there, man. Now, Steve is like amazing and awesome, you know, good looking and handsome. Is she, is she saying, is she, is she saying it or is she saying something different? He's really stupid. Okay. okay. <laughs> That's crazy. I, she's awesome. Does that every week. Tell you what. It's, it's, like, it's like aerobics over there. Okay. I don't even know where I'm at right now. Okay. We're at, okay. It's as if Jesus was saying, yeah, I know that you memorized the commandment to love your neighbor. You bought the t-shirt. You sing the song. But these people that you hate and consider pagans are doing a better job at being a neighbor than you are. See, Jesus is saying, you know what? It's possible to have bad theology <laughs> And still be a much better neighbor than people who claim to be following God. Get it? Good. A Samaritan hero. I mean, Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. I mean, this is deep hatred. You know, this is Alabama in, in, the, in the 1950s. And it's a, it's, it's a white guy lying on the side of the road. And, and, and a black guy stops by to help him. Uh, this is the Palestinians and the Jews in the Middle East. Deep hatred. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had splachna, right? That's the Greek word, splachna. It's, it's from the gut level. And I want you to say that with me three times and spit on the person in front of you, right? No. Splachna. 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 Right? Yeah. And the Samaritan saw the guy lying in the road, not just with his eyes, but with his gut. You ever seen somebody with your gut? Going over to him, you see, he made contact, he got close, he came near, he touched the wounded man. Why? Because his compassion level was greater than his comfort level. I really like what Erwin McManus wrote in his book, The Unstoppable Force, uh, Daring to Become the Church that God Had in Mind. He, he writes this. It's a great book, by the way. And it is risky to become the church that God wants, right? Um, the church exists to serve as the body of Christ. The serving that we're called to requires direct contact. You cannot wash the feet of a dirty world if you what? You refuse to touch it. Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. Why? Because that's what he had. The wine worked okay because it's alcohol, it's an antiseptic. The oil worked okay because it would soothe his wounds. And then it says he dressed his wounds with bandages and I yeah, you know, I don't think he had a first aid kit in his backpack. And the guy in the ditch had been stripped of his clothing. So more than likely the bandages were the own clothing of the Samaritan that he, he tore up into pieces and began to bandage the guy bleeding on the side of the road. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. 
The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. And then Jesus said to the dumb question guy, now which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Can you feel the hardness of his heart? I mean, he couldn't even bring himself to say, well, obviously, Jesus, it was a Samaritan who was a good neighbor. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Go and do the same. Go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem. On the way to Jerusalem and the way from Jerusalem, along the road of your life, be that guy. Stop asking who is my neighbor and start asking Won't you be my neighbor, right? And Mr. Rogers stole it from Jesus. Won't you be my neighbor? That's what I'm talking about. Being a witness is not about a title. It's It's not about the priest or the Levite. It's not about a function. It's very, very simple. It's about loving the father and loving his kids, something that a two-year-old can understand. Now, as we begin to to wrap up, I I, I want to talk about uh, three things that we can do uh, that will help us this week and the weeks to come as we travel the roads of our life to be servants, to serve people, to be that person, uh, to be a good neighbor. The first is we we need to stop. We need to stop. But that's a problem, right? Instead of passing by on the other side of the road, we've got to stop. Quick question, why don't we? Why don't we stop? A guy named Tim Harlow wrote a book called Life Will Mission. He suggests one possible answer is this. I honestly believe that the greatest hindrance to the mission of Jesus is the busyness of his agents. We're busy. Do you agree? We don't have time. Several years ago, uh, two Princeton psychologists decided to conduct an experiment based on the story of the Good Samaritan, and they, they grabbed a group of seminary students and asked them to prepare a short talk on a biblical theme and then to walk over to a nearby building to present it. And as they were walking to the building, you know, a, a scene was set up where there would be a guy there who obviously was slumped over in an alley. His head was down. His eyes was closed. He's coughing. He obviously needs some help. And the research wanted to see, you know, which seminary students would stop and help. And to make it more interesting, they, 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 they interjected three variables. Like they were, like number one was, what was your motives for going into, into the ministry? Was it for your own spiritual growth or was it to help people? And unbeknownst to them, they took a survey that indicated their motives already. Uh, another variable was that, you know, they had two talks they were prepared for. One group was preparing for a, a, a talk on what is the role of the professional clergy? The other, a talk on the Good Samaritan, okay? The third variable was they told one group, man, you got to hurry, you got to rush, you're already late. The other group, they said, you got plenty of time to get to where you're going. Now, now, now you would think that those who went into the ministry, right, you know, because they wanted to help people would be more likely to help the guy out, right? Nope, didn't happen. And certainly those who had just prepared a talk on the Good Samaritan, right, yeah, surely that guy would stop and help, right? That would be, nope, had no, had no effect whatsoever. Matter of fact, they said that 
some of the people who were preparing to talk for the Good Samaritan that were in a hurry actually stepped over the guy <laughs> so they could get to the place to talk about the Good Samaritan. You know what the key factor was? Whether or not you had enough time. Only 10% of the people in a hurry stopped to help. For 63% who were told they had plenty of time, you know, stopped and helped the guy out. I honestly believe that the greatest hindrance to the mission of Jesus is the busyness of his agents. And in his book, Tim talks about how if we really dug into the hearts of most churches that we would find people who really do care, but they have so much on their plates that they literally do not feel like they have time to do anything other than walk by on the other side of the road. Ever feel that way? You got so much stuff going on, so much at work, so much at home, so many activities, so much recreation, so many things that, yeah, you'd like to help, but you just don't have time. And he also knows that sometimes it's church activities, right, that are overloading our plates. Hey, sorry, I love to help, but I'm heading to a Bible study. Sorry, man in the ditch. And, and then he makes a, a, very, a very strong statement in his book. He says, the most important thing many of you reading this book might be able to do to get back on mission is to stop going to so many Bible studies, right? Yeah. I'll tell you what, if our Bible studies and going to church hasn't made us want to help people anymore, I don't think they're really doing that good, right? They're not doing me any good, right? If preaching sermons are not helping me motivate to help somebody out who is less fortunate, then really, what good is it doing? It's not doing much good whatsoever. You got to stop, and then you need to drop. Stop, drop. Maybe it sound a little bit familiar to you. And I'm saying drop is not just about stopping, You've got to inconvenience yourself. You've got, you got to get off your donkey. You've got to get off your donkey. Turn to the person to your right and left and say, get off your donkey. Get off your donkey. I got a text from my wife at the first service, told me not to do this, but it wouldn't be fair. <laughs> Everything within me wants to use the King James Version right now, but I won't, all right? We need to get off our donkey. Get off our donkey. Bottom line, drop is about overcoming. Come back. That, that, she was right. Come back. Bottom line, drop is about overcoming selfishness. You see, not only do we have to stop, but we have to drop. We have to get off our donkey and get down. We've got to have a relationship, right? See, the problem is we can't stop, right, without dropping, right? We can stop and throw some money at it because we'd, we'd much rather write a check rather than help someone out, right? I don't really want to help anyone, but here's a check. You can help that person out, you know, because i got places to go, things to do, right? Or we could toss a, a bottle of Advil at them. But dropping is about relationships. Remember, our compassion level must be greater than our comfort level. That's the only way that this is going to work. If I stop and then I drop. So I stop, I drop, and I so want to say roll, but I'm not. Stop, drop, and Share. 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 Sharing is about getting personally involved. It's, it's about sharing things that we have. Okay, here's the deal. What I want you to do this week as you go around, as you especially go around in your neighborhoods, where you work, at school, etc., and you see people, is to stop, drop, and share. Stop, drop, and share. What did a Samaritan share? He shared what he had. He had some wine and, and, and he had some oil, just the stuff he had. He took out his wallet and, and he shared a few bucks, put the guy, basically two weeks wages. You know, he didn't empty out his bank account, just a couple weeks pay. He just stopped, dropped, and shared. Brothers and sisters, God gave 
everything to us, so why can't we do that? Stop, drop, and share. James asks us, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? God, please protect me from your followers. The same way faith by itself, it's not accompanied by actions, it's pointless, it's dead. And that's the problem with religion. George Bernard Shaw said it like this, the worst sin we can commit towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent toward them, to not see them. So what are you going to do? I mean, I doubt that when you go home today, you're going to find someone half dead in a ditch, right? If you do, call 911 first and then go over and help the guy out. But what can we practically do? Has someone in your neighborhood at work had a baby? Can you take them some food? Can you write them a note? Is someone sick, right? You could take them some food, see what you can do to help them out. Is there a friend or someone at work or a family member that's going through a difficult time? You know, I, I think one of the best things that we can do to be a person that serves, to be, to be a good neighbor, is to stop, drop, and share a cup of coffee, right? And, and just listen. Don't be nosy. Don't be weird, right? I mean, just, just listen. And oh, you're thinking, well, well, how am I supposed to know my neighbor's difficulties? By hanging out with them, by getting connected to them, by making an effort to talk with them. Understand, Jesus' commandment wasn't to know your neighbor as yourself, it was to love them. But we can't love our neighbor if we don't know our neighbor. Get it? Good. So, Maple Grove, what do you say we get busy about our one job? You know, and, and will you keep praying for one? God, give me one person that I can share your love with today. And will you keep looking for ways to connect with people who do not know Jesus in real and tangible ways? I mean, that person across the street that maybe you don't even like them, right? You know, uh, that person where you work, you know, where you, who you go to school with, you know, you never know. They could be the one, right? They could be the one. And then would you see them and serve them? See, we, we can connect all we want, but it's not going to do any good until they understand that we actually do care about them, that we have compassion for them, right? As Theodore Roosevelt said, right, people don't care what you know, how much you know, till they know that you what, to, that, you, that you care. And, and speaking of, of, of compassion, it's the third leg of our mission statement as a church. Like Jesus, it's great that it's on a banner, right? It's better when it comes off the banner and in into our lives. Our mission, like Jesus, we seek the lost, make disciples, and we show compassion. And speaking of compassion, um, next Sunday after second service, uh, Patrick Ngati's here. He's the new leader of the compassion team. He, he's having a huddle with anybody interested in being a part of it or finding out what the compassion team is going to be doing in the future and getting that sucker rolling again uh, so that we as a church can be demonstrating the love of Jesus in practical ways next Sunday after second service. Hey, we're about to wrap up for real. But you know whose birthday it is today? It's yours. It's mine. It's the church. It is Pentecost Sunday. 2,000 years ago, the church of Jesus Christ was born when the Holy Spirit came down with power upon the apostles and 3,000 people were baptized and added to the number that day. I'm so grateful for the church. I'm so glad the church was born. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. 
We're having a family fun day to really celebrate that birthday. And speaking of the church, do you know why the church exploded with growth and was such an effective witness for Jesus? It's because they really got this love dad and love his kids thing down. Love God, love people. In fact, they had it down so well that even people outside of them knew that this is what they were about. The Roman emperor Hadrian was not a believer, wanted nothing to do with Christianity or Jesus. He lived around 120 AD, but yet he saw the church and he had this to say about the church. Look at how they love one another. See how they love one another. They never failed to help the widows. They saved orphans from their, those who would hurt them. They have, if they have something, they give freely to those who have nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home as though he were a brother. I mean, who wouldn't, be, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And that's why the church blew up. And the three centuries took over the entire world to the point where Constantine, the Roman emperor in 300 AD, became a believer. And why did this happen? Because they love God. And they love each other. And they love their neighbor as themselves. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor. Be a neighbor. I'm going to close with these words written by uh, Mother Teresa. You guys can stand as I, as I read these. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with, it, with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Maple Grove, a world that is lost, a world that is broken, a world that is hopeless and hapless like sheep without a shepherd, are wondering, do you see me? Do you see me? And I'm here to tell you, I believe with all my heart that pray for one will open our eyes and we'll see them. And that then we will stop and we'll drop and we'll share and we'll get to know them. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray. Father God, we love you. God, thank you for seeing us seeing us in the good times and the bad times. Thank you for seeing me when, when I was hopeless and, and hapless, a, a sheep in desperate need of a shepherd. Thank you for not turning your back on me, closing your eyes. Thank you, Jesus, for not walking by on the other side of the road, but coming down to the ditch that I was in, the darkness that had engulfed me, and reaching down your nail-scarred hands and pulling me up out of it. And God, I pray that you be with us as a church. God, as we take the risk and dare to become the church that you had in mind, not what we had in mind. And God, that our eyes this week will, will have eyes that see through the lens of compassion. And God, that, that we'll stop and we'll drop and we'll share. And God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. And God, we thank you that you're a God who loves us. We thank you that you're a God that we have but to bow our head or look up to you and know that you're here. 
God, you never fail us. You're faithful and true. And God, I pray as we close in song right now, God, that we will just look to you and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.